So good morning, everyone, and welcome to session three of a camp, which I felt the burden of this for a long time. I actually wrote this down as when I prepared it. I wrote this sermon down as a manuscript because I wanted to make sure that I didn't go off on some tangent. I wanted to make sure that I was theologically precise with this particular aspect of God, the Holy Spirit. And so I'm going to be looking down a fair bit just to go through my manuscript. I'm also a bit tired, so I want to make sure I don't flip-flop my negatives and my positives, which sometimes I can do. Um, so anyway, maybe we'll just start off with a prayer, hey? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the portal that it gives us into your characteristics, your personality, your throne room. Yeah, we don't see it as clearly as we should, but we can see it. We get a sense of it. We understand it. And that's magnificent. And as we explore this great truth of the grief of the Spirit, Lord, I just pray we'd get it. Because if we don't get this aspect of who you are, we just don't get the core of who you are. You're just an entity like Allah in the sky. And I don't want that for my people here or for my brothers and sisters. I want us to know personally, relationally, intimately, the being, the essence, the, the, the personality of the Holy Spirit. Father, would you, would you just illuminate our hearts so that we understand and would we just determine in our hearts now to hear you, Lord? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you want to go deeper? Do you want to, you want to trust more deeply? You want your people to trust more deeply? Do you want to hope more deeply? Do you want your people to hope more deeply? Do you want to uh, love more deeply? You want your people to love more deeply? Do you really want to go deeper? My brothers and sisters, do you want to go deeper? If you do want to go deeper, then you need to understand that you can grieve the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Have you ever really explored that in the scriptures? It's a verse that's there. We often say, oh, be careful. We don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit. Or maybe we don't say it at all. Maybe it's just one of those verses that's too hard. We just kind of gloss over it. You need to know that you can grieve him. And so what I've done just for this next little segment is I put together a a short montage of verses. They start in Genesis, they go for about three or four minutes and they end up with this idea of grieving the Holy Spirit. And the verses essentially capture, or not capture, but demonstrate the expression of God's Holy Spirit through the Bible. So you see that magnificent cosmological kind of view of him involved in creation as God the Holy Spirit. Then you see him involved with his people then you see him involved with the church. You see him expressing himself as well through Jesus, the son, who is also grieved at times, leading up to do not grieve the Holy Spirit with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And I just want you to grasp, the, the, I guess, the, the grandeur of that and also the horror of it. Um, I've watched that a few times and I've thought about the verses a lot that I put together and every time I see that, I'm really moved because... You think about God who is very God, the holy, sovereign, divine being with angelic beings that surround his throne, worshipping him 24-7, holy, holy, holy. And then you think about God in the sun who weeps over the rebellious city, who weeps over death. He is grieved. He has emotions. And I really want us to understand that today. In the last few sessions, we've had the splendors of the Spirit We've had the responsibilities of the Spirit 
and for preparing these sessions in the last few weeks and for my own life, I've really come to realise again and be reminded again to the depths of my soul that the Holy Spirit is not just a dove flitting from shoulder to shoulder, bringing these kinds of whimsical blessings. He's not just a strange force or a mystical influence. He is God of very God. He is the everlasting burning. That is one way the Bible puts it. He is flowing through his people, through the world, oceanically powerful, hurricane-like at times, and yet gentle, loving, kind, patient. So gentle so as not to extinguish a flickering flame. If you're a flickering flame or a bruised reed, he knows because he is not just a force. He is the Holy Spirit. He knows every hair on your head. He knows when a sparrow falls and he actually cares about that. The Holy Spirit, who uniquely brings the powerful sense of Abba Father to the deepest part of our souls, the Holy Spirit, uniquely the Spirit, uniquely the Holy Spirit, and yet the same as God, one in three, intrinsically unified and intrinsically diverse. He is powerful, holy, spectacular, magnificent, beautiful, exhilarating. He is the Lord God. That's who the Holy Spirit is. So it's perplexing to me and kind of horrifying that as we consider Ephesians 4.30 that says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. It's, it's just perplexing to me that that can even happen. It should bring like an internal shudder to us. Do you get a sense of what I might mean? Like it should bring almost a bit of a shaking to our souls because we can grieve the most powerful, the most superb, the most special being in the whole universe. We can grieve God, the spirit, the one that we've been studying and seeing has such power, mercy, splendor. It's massive that a verse like this even exists. If you were to write the Bible about God, we would not write a verse like that. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. It's shocking to me. It should be shocking to all of us that we can inflict grief on God, sorrow on God, distress of some kind on God, emotional pain somehow in some way on he who is comprehensively perfect and complete in and of himself, who is more powerful than infinity, more sovereign, more in control than anything we can imagine, immeasurably more than we can imagine. And he can sort of be dis disrupted by silly little mortals like us. <sighs> what? Think about that. You know, we've got this 10 cent heartbeat. We've got this puny little fist. We've got this white anted will. And somehow God cares for us so deeply in his sovereignty that he can be grieved. And it isn't just Ephesians. You know, we might try and exegete that one away. As you already would have seen through the little montage there, it's everywhere. For instance, Psalm 78 verse 40. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the wasteland. Isaiah 63, 9 to 11. In their distress, he too was distressed. That's God. God too was distressed. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and mercy, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and he carried them all the days of old. That was his people, his people Israel. Yet they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Mark 3, 4 and 5. It's Jesus. He's healed on the Sabbath. And then Jesus says to his detractors, to his critics, which is lawful on the Sabbath to do good or do evil, to save life or to kill? They just remain silent. He looks around at them in anger and deeply distressed, grieved at their stubborn hearts. 
He says to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretches it out and it's completely restored. In that moment, Jesus is grieved. There are other times too. There's a similar word that's used when the, the, the children are prevented from coming to Jesus. It's a similar type of grieving of, of, uh, of anger, of sort of righteous grieving anger. No, don't stop the children from coming to me. How dare you? I'm so glad that we've got a God that is emotional, perfectly, proportionately, sovereignly emotional, never out of balance, never out of kilter, always completely loving while completely just. It's awesome. It's mind-blowing. How can it be that we could grieve God, grieve his spirit, grieve his son? It's humanity's shame. And it is as plain in the Bible as the son of God's tears falling into the dirt on a roadside above Jerusalem as he weeps for the rebellious city. This is mind-blowing. In order to know, I think anyway, in order to know what grieving God means, we need to know the context of this verse. So I invite you to open up to Ephesians if you haven't already. And this do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Its context, it's found in a little letter that Paul wrote to an ancient city called Ephesus 2,000 years ago. That verse is Ephesians 4.30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. We've mentioned it a few times already. It's about four chapters into this letter. Ephesus was a pagan, uh, Diana-worshipping city. One of the Roman gods. Incredibly debaucherous. Full of idols. And yet in there, there was a group. There was a church. Our early brothers and sisters met there. Imagine that. They got together to talk about the Lord Jesus Christ. They got together to praise his name. They had a song. They had a revelation. They had a hymn that they would share and teach one another. On the Lord's day, they probably gathered together. And so Paul writes a letter to this church in Ephesus. And in order to understand what it means to grieve the Holy Spirit, we need to understand what he was saying in this whole letter. So what we're going to do is, you can actually follow along with me, but we're going to go through the letter fairly quickly. Go and look at it yourself next time. We're just going to get a sense of the context that builds up into this grieving the Holy Spirit verse. So, um, like I said, just follow along if you can. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. So Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1 says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. They, when he says the faithful in Christ Jesus, that was a massive thing to say. It was a supernatural thing to say for that church, given the context that they lived in. He doesn't say to pagans or idol worshippers in the city of the huntress goddess Diana. He doesn't say to them, do not grieve. He says, from verse 1, to God's holy people, the faithful in Christ Jesus. He then goes on to tell these faithful ones of their cosmic roots, of being predestined in Christ, of being adopted into Christ, sort of like grafted in is the language from Romans. Same sentiment, same idea, lavished with grace. Verse 13, if you just flick down to that, you were included in Christ and you were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believe, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. So when they believe, just like when you believe, you immediately become part of God's elect, part of God's family, and you are given the Holy Spirit. So this is, these are the people he's talking to. 
And he tells them that as a result of believing, of depending, of trusting in Jesus, they have turned from sin, they are in Christ, and it's this kind of liquid language. It's the same as baptizees in the water. When they go into the water, they go under, they're washed, they're made clean, they're immersed. That's why we baptize by full immersion. And then they are given the Spirit as a down payment to be baptized into Christ, to be in Christ. That's what the Holy Spirit does. But so then how does someone in Christ, a faithful one, a holy one, grieve him? How does that happen? Why does it happen? We need to kind of keep on flowing with the context of Ephesians. So let's go to chapter 2. And we are told, and I always remember this from um, Dave Kiwi. He was, he was a great preacher. You could really open up the word. I remember him going through Ephesians and he used the idea of um, like a firecracker display. Every time you come to this great new truth or revelation, it's like a boom. And I really wanted to use that P.O.D. song, Boom. I don't think it was that keen. You know, the boom. I'll play it later. Uh, anyway, some are looking at me blankly. But every time you see this great revelation of what God has done, it's like, boom. Or Bushgar, you know. Anyway, I'll give up on the sound effects. Anyway, but from chapter 2, we see that without Christ, dead, disobedient, under a dark ruler of the air, but then grace. By grace you have been saved, by faith, and this being the gift of God, you are now no longer strangers, aliens, but God's family. That's the Abba Father thing again. Members of his household being built into a dwelling for him by his spirit. But but what does it mean to grieve him? Well, the context flows on. Boom, chapter 3, the mystery of Christ unifying the world. Filling the world, leading to a prayer from Paul, which I've already prayed for you guys and we can keep praying for each other. I'm going to end the sermon with this a little bit later. 2,000 year old prayer for a primitive city and, and later for the church at you know Willowburn. We can pray that same thing. A prayer that asks that they would be filled with the fullness of God. That you may be filled, verses um, 19 in chapter 3, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God to know what it means to... Gr- Sorry, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. So to know what it means to grieve the spirit, the flow of Paul's sort of vintage letter draws us into knowing what it means, first of all, to be full of God. We see that again in Ephesians 4, 11 to 13, as Paul moves on. In Ephesians 4, we are told from 11 there, Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and the teachers to what? To just gob off from the front? To have an audience from you guys? No, to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, becoming mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. That's the plan, guys. That you will be made full or that you will become full of Christ. Can you imagine what your family would like if you were already into the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, what your workplace would look like. So the first half of Ephesians, three of six chapters, born from above, the birth story of Christians of the church. Second half of Ephesians is how the church is to grow up into that fullness in everyday life, in lots of practical sorts of things. Growing up into the fullness of God, the fullness of Christ, the new life. And it includes as well the fullness of the Spirit. 
So the fullness of God, when Paul talks about that, inevitably leads him to talk, to, talk about the fullness of the Spirit. Have a look at Ephesians 5.18 with me. Famous verses. Don't get drunk. Don't be foolish. Be wise. Make the most of every opportunity. Be filled with the Spirit. Be filled by the Spirit. So what happens when the Spirit fills us? Well, drawing back to the fullness verses that I've already given you from Ephesus, it's the fullness of God, the fullness of Christ. The fullness of the Spirit is the fullness of His characteristics of His personality with us. That's what Paul wants when he prays his prayer. That's, what he, that's why he's writing. That's what he wants for all Christians. And to be more sort of precise, my understanding as I read, I don't know Greek, but I can read commentaries, and my understanding is that that is the present tense. So it is be being filled. Be being filled. So the idea is that you're being filled constantly. It's not like, yep, whoop, 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 I'm done. No, it's like a constant stream of water. And that ties into one of the sermons we're going to do later with the metaphors of the Spirit with you see God flowing. He's not a stagnant pool. He's a, it's a flow of water. You remember John 7, that living, you know, the, the, the water will come flowing out of you, living springs. To be filled by the Spirit is to have the fullness of Christ bubbling like a, like a fountain, just constant. That's, that's the metaphor there. That's what Paul is sort of encouraging us on towards. But what's the grieving stuff? What's this do not grieve the Spirit? We're going to get there. We need to get there. But we need to follow these currents of Ephesians further into this fullness of God, fullness of Christ idea. So they've taken us from the presence of God, of being in Christ. This term in Christ appears 15 times in Ephesians alone and many times throughout Scripture. In Christ, one with Christ. Very important term. They've taken us from that of being baptised in Him, being in Him, to this idea of being full of God, full of Christ. So 3.19 is in Ephesians is filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Ephesians 4.13 is attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, leading up to Ephesians 5.18, be filled by the Spirit. This is the earthiness of the Spirit with us now, filling us now, right now, here. So you say, like, beauty, fullness of God, fullness of Christ, sounds better than grand final day. Better than Cheap Tuesdays at Eagle Boys. <laughs> Better than cool water on a hot day. Uh, in all seriousness, it, it is. It's a magnificent truth. And part of the fullness will be uh, God showing us the reality of that more and more. But there's this rotten, sickening little problem, a darkness. And it's scattered throughout Ephesians as well. Ephesians 4, 17. I tell you this. And I insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding, separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. A hard heart cannot be filled with God the Holy Spirit. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity and they are full of greed. I want you to remember that, full, full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him accordance, in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life, put off your old self, which has been corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your mind, in verse 24, to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbour, 
And so the problem is this old self. We've talked a lot about it in the last few sessions. It's called the flesh, AKA the sinful nature. You are taught with regard to your former way of life to put that old self off. Other places in the Bible, this old self is called the sinful nature or the flesh, as I've already said, and it's that part of us that is so sin-affected is the black hole from which all deceitful desires come, selfish desires, and they give birth to all manner of greed, impurity, immorality, and that gives birth to all sorts of self-deceit, self-justification, self-rationalization, looking at other people going, well, they're worse than me, I'm okay. Or noticing that you know someone cuts you off, getting real angry, but when you cut someone off, you've got every excuse under the sun as to why you did that. That's all part of the simple nature, part of the deceit. All the stuff you see about uh, recently uh, on the montage with the Israelites grieving, they would have all been doing that in the flesh, not by faith, not by depending on God. When we grieve him, generally, we're going to be in this old self or um, indulging this old self. So um, if you were to take time this week and look at the second half of Ephesians, you'll see that the opposite of being filled with the Spirit isn't being empty. What do I mean by that? The opposite of being filled with the Spirit isn't being empty. It's actually being full of the flesh, wearing the old nature, indulging the old nature. And the thing about the old nature, it, it is no Switzerland. It will not remain neutral. There is a powerful sucking vacuum that is looking to be filled. You either live with the new nature being filled and being filled, be being filled, or the old nature demands and wants to have its way, which is for it to be filled. And what is it filled with? What will it fill itself with? Ephesians 4.19 tells us, having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so to, so to, to indulge in every kind of impurity. They are full of greed. That's what the simple nature does. It demands its way. It demands to be full of greed, to be full of... This is to God's holy people, guys. This is your battle. This is the, the, the nature of know your enemy. Remember the theme we believe God has given us. First love, first know your enemy. This is one of your enemies. It's so real. We see these terrible fullnesses of the old nature elsewhere in the Bible, such as Romans 1.29. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossip. So every time we gossip, every time there's malicious stuff in us because of the flesh, it's the filling begins, the filling begins. And if we rationalize, if we do not repent, it will continue to fill and you'll become, continue to become more self-deceived, more hardened. Isn't it interesting that gossip, envy, deceit are also coupled with murder? Old nature feelings, greed, gossip, envy, all those things that are probably in us quite a lot with murder. And Romans 1 describes a terrible world. That's the world of the old nature, where the old nature has had its way, full of murder, strife, without the love and sacrifice of Christ. And it might be surprising to you, but the old nature thrives in organisations like this. It can find a ready place for hypocrisy, judgmentalism, greed covered over with other things. It's terrible. How we need his Holy Spirit. This is how the Lord Jesus described it. You Pharisees, 
You're clean on the outside, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. Terrible. They thrived in a church environment, in a religious environment. The sinful nature is constantly gravitating towards a state of its own fullness. And it's cleared whether it's indulged in a religious show on a Sunday or a debaucherous weekend. The old nature, if it's fed, if it's nurtured, it will move us towards its own fullness, fullness of envy, hatred, strife, gossip, and all the other things that will march in step with deceitful desires. And as these desires have their way, our inner man, our inner woman, the, 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 the inner part of us that is designed to be renewed begins to rust, oxidize, wrinkle, sicken, fester. The same thing that we see happening as a sermon on our bodies as we get older begins to happen on the inside. And Paul insists in Ephesians 4.22, put off your old self. It's being corrupted. It's rotting. It's deceitful. Deceit hyphen full. There is nothing good in your flesh. And what seems so good, so pleasurable is rusting us. It's aging us. It's festering. It's corrupting. We become what we love, like that verse in the montage. And that's why we are told in Ephesians 4 with a great deal of earnestness from Paul, don't do that. Put that off. Put that festering old self off. Stop drinking from the toilet bowl before it's flushed. I thought about that, you know, no one wants to do that, but that's the reality of it. It's covered with, you know, anyway, I don't need to go too far. You know, and sometimes like God just goes, this is what it's really doing for you. The old self can't be filled with the spirit. There is no compromise. It's full of gunk. It must therefore daily be put off and the new self put on. We're back to our responsibilities, coming to him. You know, the old self will make you, at first it will make you thirsty. Later on, you just don't even feel anything. Uh, you know, you get hard and, and then it takes a massive move of God to bring you back. So again, we're back to how do we grieve? How do we sorrow the spirit? Where does all this fit in? We're nearly there. Just bear with me. The flow of Ephesians tells us. Paul is speaking to the faithful ones in Ephesus, warning them to put off the old nature, put on the new nature. He's telling Christians, he's telling Christians because he sees that battle. Romans 7 is a great place. Go and have a look at that as well if you get time. And he's telling them, don't try and backfill the skin of the old nature. It'll never work. But glory of glories, you can thrive in the skin of the spirit nature. He's telling them they can either fester in the flesh or shine in the spirit. And now's where we start to get closer to the shocking reality of sorrowing God. You can see the situations of Ephesians 4 to 6. It's the situations of everyday life. Again, have a look at this later. It's the context, the circumstances of life. Ephesians 4 2. Be humble, gentle, bearing with who? With one another. That's the relationships of life. Paul always moves from the magnificent theology of what Christ has done, what God has done, what the Spirit is doing to now do this, now live like this, with, with that understanding, with that power. He says, keep the unity of the Spirit. Let there be no falsehood. Speak truth to your neighbour. Don't steal. Do something useful with your hands. That's uh, verses 25 to 28 of chapter 4. That's your work situations. No unwholesome talk. 29, but build others up according to their need. 
That's all our life words and speech. Very practical. Have you ever thought about that? Saying things that build up. Is, that ever, is there ever a check on your heart to go, wait a minute, is this going to build this person up? Or is it just rubbish? And then surprisingly, straight after that is, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Straight after that. Then he's into Ephesians 5. And he says, not even a hint, not even an, I- an iota of immorality or impurity amongst you, but expose darkness. Not talking about it, but by shining on it with a spiritual kind of light. That's what I believe it says there. When we're filled with the Holy Spirit, there t- tends to be that prophetic light that sort of just comes out in our actions, in our words, and even without sometimes direct, you know, direct kind of engagement with a particular sin of someone else. It just shows it for what it is because there's this contrasting thing going on. Verse 18, don't get drunk on wine. Be filled with the Spirit. Isn't it interesting that be filled with the Spirit is infused and integrated in the text in the same sentence as the drunk and marriage sentences? So husbands then get this massive calling to love as Christ loved, all coming out of the idea of being filled with the Spirit. Verses 22 to 33 of chapter 5, Husbands, love your wives just as Jesus loved the church and gave himself up for her, cleansing her by washing with water through the word. Then Ephesians 6 verse 1, Children, children, obey your parents. For this is right, honour your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. I wish when this had been pointed out, and I love my mum and dad, but I wish when this had been pointed out to me so many times, they had told me about the previous chapter where Paul talks, well, the previous chapters, where Paul talks about everything that God has done for me as a Christian and then given me the Holy Spirit, be filled with the Holy Spirit, now honour your father and mother. I never, I, never got, I never got that bit as strongly as maybe I should have. You know what that turns you into? Either a defeated hypocrite, sorry, wrong, a defeated loser, spiritual loser, or a proud hypocrite. Because you begin going, yeah, yeah, I'm kind of honouring him, or you begin to justify. But when you are powered up by the Holy Spirit, these commandments become attainable, completely attainable. He goes on. In chapter 6, talks about work situations of slave and master. So how much more than a manager and an employer in today's 21st century world? Imagine a spirit-filled boss that you work for. Imagine if you're a boss, a spirit-filled employee. Imagine you come into that place. Maybe it's like you know Tim's hospitality uh, area. Maybe it's commerce. Maybe it's legal stuff. Imagine spirit-filled uh, employment and then in Ephesians 6 because life is not just the superstructure of relationships of church of work of family of marriage it's also the substructure of the spiritual of spiritual power uh, spiritual principalities spiritual powers famous spiritual armor verses and we are told put on that armor and pray in the Spirit on all occasions. Don't grieve the Spirit. Be filled by the Spirit and pray in the Spirit on all occasions. That's the flow of Ephesians. It's in the everyday earthiness of life. Do you see what Paul has done? The whole of life is represented here in the context of our relationship with the Spirit. Work, family, it's all there in Ephesians. Ephesians. 
That's the earthiness of the Spirit, that He's with us here on earth to help us. It isn't just for supernatural works and signs and wonders and healings and prophetic words. It is for the supernatural outworking of you as a person so that you would be full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and all the other fruit of the Spirit. No, don't put on the flesh. Put on the Spirit and be filled by the Spirit. That's your choice in every moment. That's your choice every day. I used to think the feeling was something that was going to enable me to heal and work miracles and often pray for, for spiritual gifts because I know they'll mutually edify the church. But how much more so just loving my wife the way she deserves, the way God wants me to, or loving my children. How much more so that? That's what it means to be, be filled, be being filled. Such a beautiful thing. You know, we are cups in a sense. What is the natural state of a cup? What is the intent and the functionality of a cup, of a vessel, an empty vessel? To be filled. There is something unnatural about a cup just sits on the shelf not doing anything. And again, we can be filled by the Spirit or we can be filled by all the things that the flesh wants us to be filled by. The natural state now of our second nature is that we will be filled with Christ. By being filled so that you can speak wholesomely to that repair guy that didn't show up. To your wife, she aggravates you. To your mum and dad so that you can honour them. So that you can love serve by picking up the dishes, picking up the clothes. So that your language stops rotting and gets loving. This isn't a special one-off call, it's constant. And finally, I finish off with what I started with, which is what is the grief of the Spirit? What is this, do not grieve the Holy Spirit? And hopefully, even though it's been this broad arc over Ephesians, I hope you've already got a sense of what it is. We saw it earlier. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth and then straight into do not grieve the Holy Spirit. But in the totality of Ephesians, to grieve the Holy Spirit is to insist on continuously putting on the flesh instead of the spirit. He comes to you in your moment. He reminds you. He brings you to repentance, perhaps. He brings you to this choice of will you, will you be filled by myself, by my power? Will you engage in my power? Or will you simply continue to wear the flesh, justify, rationalize, blah, 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 blah? Will you listen? And if we, as God in his sovereignty, who has made the cosmos, who has in a sense stooped low in his gentleness to make us great, and we go, no, I think I will continue in the flesh, then you need to know, you need to know that you grieve him. You grieve him. We cause him anguish. Do you think it is without reason, reason that the scripture says the spirit he has given us um, envies intensely? about where our affections are. Don't grieve the Spirit. Be filled by the Spirit. Pray in the Spirit. Take off the old. Put on the new. And never forget that He is an everlasting burning, a consuming fire. It is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God in judgment. It's serious. It's as serious as fire blossoming out and just consuming a bunch of complainers in the Old Testament, or the ground opening up, consuming sinning rebels. They were in the very presence of God 
when they grieved, it was like judgment was instant almost. God was grieved by the state of the earth. He's grieved by complaining, sinning Israelites. It's truly a terrible thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And yet, in this grief of God, I just want you to know, we must not forget this one thing, the first three chapters of Ephesus, of Ephesians, of the letter to Ephesus, of being in Christ, baptised into him. You know, the grief of the Spirit, the grief of God has fallen upon his Son. You know, like every time we grieve him, that grief is put onto his son. Do you understand? The sting is taken out of it for you in terms of the judgment that would inevitably otherwise follow. And it is put on his son on the cross. The nail marks. I saw Eddie before when we made the remark about his burns. Imagine how much worse it would be for nails. The man who bled. The man who was God, who was the lamb. The grieving that comes upon him. We don't even know how that works. We don't truly get that. You know, I sometimes wonder in that moment on the cross of the, the sin-covered, pure Son of God dying for the sins of the world, what was the Holy Spirit doing? Grieving, I believe. Watching the precious Son smash to a pulp. The, the, the spear up into the side. I can't get it into my head sometimes just that, that God would do that for us. I don't get it. I always remember that author, like he runs out after encountering God in a special way in his moment of first thirst, of his moment of really realising who God is. And he runs out and he shakes his hand at the sky and he goes, you're crazy. You're crazy to love me this much. He's crazy to love us this much. We are covered by him, protected by him, imputed with his righteousness. We are his sons and daughters. And even when we grieve him, that relationship is not broken because he loves us. So yes, like a loving father will bring, do everything they can to bring back the son. Remember the montage that David and Absalom, that is a picture of Jesus' heart for the sinner. I call it the Absalom dilemma where he loves his son, but his son just continually rebels and rebels. And yet he sorrows for his son when his son finally dies. This is the heart of God for us. We like to talk about his holiness and how he hates sin. He does, but he loves us. Only God can do that. So do you really want to keep drinking from the toilet bowl? You know, I just want us to realize that, yeah, it might not be a lightning bolt moment, but I want you to realize the next time you get angry or irritated, just to say a little prayer to God. God, I don't want to grieve your spirit today. What I'd like to do is... I'd like to have your power to change. And maybe you even need to walk away for a bit, take a breath, come back. Maybe when the words of complaint begin to rise up, Lord, this, this is the, the filling of the flesh beginning. I don't want that. I want to be filled by your spirit. Pray on all occasions. He's our father. He gives the Holy Spirit without limit to those who ask. So ask, seek, knock. And we are back to where we started. We're at the end of this sermon. And I just wanted to finish off with Paul's prayer again. I, I won't kneel down this time. But just, just listen in the context of understanding what it means to grieve the Spirit, understanding what it means to be filled by the Spirit, understanding the loving, forgiving nature of our God. 
Ephesians 3.16. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being for Monday morning, Tuesday, Wednesday, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church, Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. I'm going to ask the band if they could come back out. And if, uh, sorry to put you on the spot, but I really want to do this. Uh, and we're going to sing immeasurably more. Now to him who's able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power. I love the fact that God is in our circumstances. He's very earthy. He knows where we're at. It isn't a spiritual, ethereal thing to be filled by the spirit. It's an earthy thing. He loves us. And he is able to do immeasurably more in those circumstances.